This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something... Other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Welcome in, everybody, episode 301 of the podcast in Swimming America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, September 5th, 2020, people. I hope everybody had a great weekend watching college football. I hope everybody had a great weekend watching the NFL. I'm actually recording right after the Cleveland Browns just absolutely destroyed the Dallas Cowboys. Kind of a theme of the weekend, not a great weekend to be a fan of uh, football teams in Texas, which we're going to get into, but great show today. And what I think I'm going to do today is very simply this. There are some days where we are going to spend 15, 20 minutes off the top on one big topic, right? Last week, it was the Big 12 laying an egg. Uh, Previous weeks, it's been about the Big 10. It's been about uh, Michigan, Ohio State in college basketball. It's been about a big Kentucky game or a big Duke game or whatever. But then there's weeks like today, there's episodes like today, where I think it's just going to be kind of a whip around show. I don't know that there's one incredible storyline that we have to spend 20 minutes on on today's show, but I do think there's about eight or nine, believe it or not, that are worth mentioning and worth doing a short deep dive on. And so what I think today's show is going to be is very simply this. We are going to hit all of the big topics for about five, six, seven, eight minutes, and then we will jump from topic to topic. So what I want to hit on today, Oklahoma loses again. I just don't think they're very good, guys. We'll get into that. Uh, Texas A&M, how about your boy Jimbo Fisher? $75 million to lose by four touchdowns at Alabama. We, We are going to get into him. Because I think it's starting to get to be about go time with Jimbo Fisher, where people are starting to ask tough questions about him. We will talk about the situation at Georgia. Georgia looks dominant. Remember, I picked Georgia to make the college football national championship game. No big deal. Uh, Auburn looks terrible. Tried to tell you last week. We'll talk a little bit about that game. Shout out to the Arkansas Razorbacks, who won their first SEC game since 2017, people. Uh, Tennessee looked great. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about that Kentucky Ole Miss game. Like I said, there's like seven or eight great topics from college football to hit on, and we are going to get to all of them. And by the way, this thing's just going to keep rolling because in a couple weeks we get the Big Ten back, then eventually the Pac-12, and it's just a really, really, really fun time to be a sports fan. We got through that desert, that oasis of uh, April, May, June with no sports. 
and now we have so much to talk about. I don't know how we fit it all into one show. So let's stop wasting time. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is where you want to download this show. Uh, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, make sure that you are, in fact, subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. really does help us move up those iTunes charts. Uh, and if you're not following on social media, you got to be following on social media, people. Go to Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter. That is the new podcast page for this show and my content, as well as Aaron underscore Torres. Uh, Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. A lot of cool graphics, videos. Got a great group of guys that are helping me out with all of that stuff. Uh, and uh, like I mentioned before, YouTube, I have a channel. Just search Aaron Torres. You get clips from this show. Easy to share. If you want to just look, listen to specific clips, say you're a Kentucky fan or a Tennessee fan or an A&M fan, you can go there, get that specific clip, share it with friends and family if you want. I mentioned Facebook. I am on as well. And as always, if you have any questions for this show, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. And with that said, people, there is no more time to waste. Let's get right into the meat of it because it was a surreal, surreal, surreal day in college football. All these top teams falling. Oklahoma goes down. Texas goes down. Mississippi State, I basically knighted uh, Mike Leach last week. He loses to Arkansas. Shout out to Arkansas. First SEC win, as I mentioned. Uh, UCF, which another team that I just gave way too much credit to early in the season. They, they lost to Tulsa for the second straight year. And so it was just mayhem, chaos in the streets of college football. And so let's get into it. But as I said off the top, I do think probably the biggest story of the college football Saturday is the fact that Oklahoma lost for a second straight time. And I think the reason that it's the biggest story, at least in my opinion, is because of the fact that Oklahoma is a team that we have essentially over the last three, four, five years just kind of like penciled them into the college football playoff in the preseason. We basically said, look, they're going to get tripped up at some point. They're going to have a bad game, but they're going to finish 12-1. and They're going to win the Big 12, and they will be there in the end when it matters. Now, can they compete with Alabama, LSU, Clemson? That's another story, but at the very least, Oklahoma will be there at the end. Uh, instead, it's the exact opposite in 2020. Uh, you talk about a crazy year in 2020. How about Oklahoma being 1-2 following a 37-30 loss to Iowa State? And... It is a surreal moment in time because Oklahoma has been such a bellwether, bell cow program in college football, and the stats really largely back that up. I went back and looked it up. This is the first time since 2016 that Oklahoma is now unranked following this second straight loss. Uh, it is the first time since 1999 that they, um, that they lost back-to-back games. I mean, we literally have people listening to this show, and it's going to make people like me and people my age in your 30s, 40s, 50s feel old. We have people that listen to this show that were not alive the last time Oklahoma lost two straight games that happened in 1999, Bob Stoops' first season at Oklahoma. And how about this for a stat? First time since 1960 
that Oklahoma lost to Iowa State, a team that they've played, or excuse me, lost at Iowa State, not to Iowa State, but at Iowa State, a team that they essentially play every single year in Big 12 play. So it is a crazy moment in time. It is a surreal moment in time. And I really do think it's time to start asking some tough questions about Oklahoma. Now, I do think that if you just look at the box score, which is what the losers and idiots do. AT takes it deeper than the box score. But if you just look at the box score, I think it's easy to say, well, you know, Oklahoma's got the same problem that they always do. They don't play any defense. And I don't think you'd necessarily be wrong by saying that. If you look at the final stats of the last couple games, first of all, Oklahoma gives up 38 points to Kansas State last week in a loss. They give up 37 points to Iowa State on Saturday night. And so if you look at Oklahoma... Their offense is still averaging like 37 points a game and 37 and a half in their, or excuse me, they're averaging like 39 points a game and 36 and a half uh, just in Big 12 play. And I will say in defense of Oklahoma, if your offense is putting up 36 and a half points in conference play, you should be undefeated. Your defense shouldn't be so bad that you have to score more than 36, 37 points to win. And so the defense is bad. Again, uh, the offensive line is not as good as it has been in recent years. And so we are seeing these struggles again from Oklahoma. But to me, I do think it falls deeper than maybe we realize with the offense as well. Because I do think it's easy to say, well, you know, if you score 37 points a game, you should be winning every game. And like that is totally fair. But it's not as though Oklahoma hasn't had to score 35, 37, 40, 42, 45, 55 points to win games in the past, and they have been able to. They've been able to with Baker Mayfield at quarterback. They've been able to with Kyler Murray at quarterback. They've been able to with uh, Jalen Hurts at quarterback last year, and so I do think some of this falls on the offense, and when I think about it, I think that, look, I'm not saying like Lincoln Riley is the problem, right? Um, and, you know, I, I think I'm probably the only person even criticizing the offense at all because, again, in their defense, they are scoring a crap ton of points. But in the past, they have always been able to pull out that last drive that they need to get a victory. And this year, they haven't. And so when you fall to one and two, when you fall out of the top 25 for the first time since 2016, when you lose back-to-back games for the first time since 1999, a lot of tough questions have to be asked. And so while I think it's easy to pin it all on the defense, I think some of it does fall on the offense, but not in the way that you think. So to be clear, I'm not criticizing the offense. I'm not saying that they're not doing enough. And if anything, you know who I'm blaming? I'm blaming guys like me. I'm blaming guys and girls in the media. Because I do think coming into this season, we had this narrative in our head, oh, it doesn't matter who Lincoln Riley has at quarterback. It doesn't matter who Lincoln Riley has at all of these skill positions. Oklahoma's going to be fine. They're going to put up 60 a game, and they're going to win every game except for one, and then they'll make the playoff and they'll lose. And like I think that was the narrative. And I think we undersold in the media how hard it is to do year in and year out, season in, season out, with a new quarterback every single season. And so while I know the offense isn't necessarily quote-unquote to blame, I do think that we do have to look at the offense because as I said a minute ago, when Kyler Murray was there, they might have 30, you know, if the defense gives up 37, you score 43 and you win. If they, if they give up 41, you score 45 and you win. 
Same with Baker Mayfield, same with Jalen Hurts, and it's just not happening this year. And when I look at the offense, like I said, I do think that there's probably too much of a narrative of, oh, Lincoln Riley, just plug and play. Doesn't matter who he puts in, they're just gonna they're gonna go eleven and one and make the college football playoff. And I went back and I looked, and I do think the lack of continuity on offense this year is hurting them. First off, of their top three rushers off last year's team, all three are gone. Uh, Jalen Hurts was actually their leading rusher last year at quarterback. He obviously graduated. Their best running back, Kennedy Brooks, actually opted out of the season. And then their second best running back, Trey Sermon, transferred to Ohio State. So you lose your top three running backs. Don't forget, I just mentioned I watched that Cowboys game. Know who scored a touchdown for the Cowboys? CeeDee Lamb. Know where CeeDee Lamb played last year? He played at Oklahoma. You lose CeeDee Lamb. You lose three of your top four receivers overall from last year. And so, yes, you're replacing these guys with talented players, with good recruits. Oklahoma always recruits well. But at a certain point, you lose so many pieces that you just can't overcome it. And if you look across college football, basically, except for maybe Ohio State and Clemson, Everybody has dealt with that, right? I mean, think back to last year. Alabama couldn't stop anybody on defense. It's because you lose so many freaking pieces over the course of a two, three-year period early to the NFL draft. You're going to have a year where your defense just doesn't look good. Uh, In the past, it's been the same with Georgia. They've lost pieces. They take a step back. Uh, You know, any program, it's, it's, it's a natural course of the situation. And so I do think that is what is going on in Oklahoma right now is they just have to replace so many guys so rapidly year after year after year after year after year that I do think this is the year that it caught up with them. I also do think part of it is the quarterback situation. And again, to be clear, I'm not blaming their quarterback whose name is Spencer Rattler. For people who do not know, Spencer Rattler, really highly rated kid coming out of high school. Basically the top high school quarterback two years ago coming out of high school, commits to Oklahoma. Last year he plays behind Jalen Hurts. He was awesome. He was awesome early. He was awesome in high school. He was awesome as a redshirt last year. But I do wonder, like, have we put too much on his plate as well? Because I think it's so easy, again, to just sit here and say, well, you know, I mean, look, it's Oklahoma. (laughs) The guy's going to throw for 5,000 yards and be a Heisman Trophy candidate. And, like, I get it. I did that. I was one of those people in the preseason, like, dude, if you're looking for a Heisman contender, I mean, outside of Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, it's got to be Spencer Rattler, right? And I think what I undersold was just how good those other quarterbacks were, and more specifically, just how experienced those other quarterbacks were. If you go back to Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, and Jalen Hurts, they all have one thing in common. It's not that they were Heisman finalists at Oklahoma, although that is one thing they had in common. It's that they all started and played and played big minutes in big games at Power 5 schools before they got to Oklahoma. Never forget, even though Baker Mayfield was a three-year starter at Oklahoma, he began his career at Texas Tech. Then he gets hurt. He loses the job. He's trying to get it back. He ends up transferring to Oklahoma. Gets to Oklahoma. Wins the Heisman. I think he won the Heisman. I can't even remember now off the top of my head. I know Kyler Murray certainly won the Heisman. Uh, He started his career at Texas A&M. Played big snaps, important snaps, big games, SEC on the road. Kyler Murray had a ton of experience under center in big games before he got to Oklahoma. Jalen Hurts, how about this? He won SEC Offensive Player of the Year. He started in national championship games. 
And we were comparing in the preseason Spencer Rattler, who was in high school 18 months ago, to that guy. And so when I look at Oklahoma, what I see is a very talented team, but a very young team that doesn't seem to have confidence in themselves, and more specifically, doesn't seem to have confidence late when things get tight. Never forget, they were up when they played Kansas State. Never forget when they played, and we talked about it on last week's show, but they were up at one point 35 to 14 late in the third quarter. They were up 35-21 going into the fourth quarter and got outscored 17-zip in the fourth quarter. When they played Iowa State last night, again, they had a lead at halftime, and they get outscored 24-13 to in the second half. Not one person's fault, not just the defense's fault, not Spencer Rattler's fault, but they just look like a team that, to me, gets nervous in big moments, especially late, tries to press and tries to force it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make them a bad program. It doesn't make them a bad team. It doesn't make Lincoln Riley a bad coach. But I just think we have them completely overvalued. Now, on the flip side, they have lost back-to-back one-possession games. One of them was on the road. The other team that they lost to last week was Kansas State, who beat uh, Oklahoma last year. So they have a little bit of a track record of having success against Oklahoma. But when I look at Oklahoma, it's obviously not a vintage team, and I just don't think it gets better. I'll tell you this. It's a little early to talk about this coming weekend, but for people who haven't looked at the schedule – We got Texas-Oklahoma this weekend, and I'm just telling you, I do think I'm probably going to take Texas. And it's not because I love Texas. It's because I trust Sam Ellinger. I trust Texas a little bit more. They have more vets across the board. So to me, when I look at Oklahoma, all I'm saying is very simply this. I just think it's time to admit they're not very good. I just think it's time to, to, you know, we do this thing in sports sometimes where you have a big-name brand, and you think, oh, they'll just turn around. They'll figure it out. They're, they're, They're Oklahoma. We saw it in the NBA playoffs with the Clippers. Oh, they'll figure it out. They're the Clippers. They'll be fine. Uh, we see it in, in, in the NFL sometimes. Uh, you know, the, the, the Houston Texans fell to 0-4 on Sunday. Oh, they're the Texans. They'll figure it out. They got Deshaun Watson. No, sometimes a team just isn't as good as we think, and I think that's where we are with Oklahoma. It's disappointing. I feel bad for those kids because I know they're at this program to compete for national championships. But like I said, I just don't think they're very good this year. All right, so I mentioned Texas. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm not really going to spend a ton of time on them. I want to get to Texas A&M. Before we get to A&M, I will just give Texas a quick shout-out because shout-out to Texas, who I am convinced Texas is like one year, one week away from being back for like every single week in perpetuity. Like since Colt McCoy left, it feels like they're one win away from being all the way back, and then when they're about to get all the way back, they trip up. They lose season openers, they lose weird Big 12 games, they lose to Oklahoma, they lose games that they should win, they lose games that they should lose. Like, it's just a crazy, never-ending cycle with Texas. Uh, I don't even know if we have any Longhorn fans who listen to the show, but if we do, I just want to tell you, I genuinely feel bad for you guys, because there's nothing else to say other than, like, it's just, I, I just don't get it. I just don't get why this team just cannot psychologically get over the hump. Uh, you know, they, they've changed head coaches multiple times. They go from Mac Brown to Charlie Strong to Tom Herman. They change their coordinators multiple times. They've changed quarterbacks. Sometimes it's not the quarterback's fault. Sam Ellinger is pretty good, but they just can't get over that hump. And when you look at the TCU game from Saturday, it wasn't as though TCU played some incredible game uh, on Saturday afternoon. 
they were just a few plays better. Texas fumbles on the goal line, and it's like <laughs> it's like Charlie Brown, right? It's like it's it's one of those deals where like you think you're finally there, you're Texas, you're all the way back, and then the ball gets taken away from your foot right as you're about to kick it. So not too much on Texas. We'll talk about Texas later in the week uh, because, again, they do have that Oklahoma game coming up, and it is a game that I do want to talk about uh, on Thursday's show, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on them because I just think this is who Texas is as a program right now. They're a program that we give high expectations to every year, kind of what I was just saying with Oklahoma. They're a name brand. We know the horn, Hook'em Horn. Sam Ellinger is probably one of the most recognizable players in college football this year. But I just don't think they're very good. Like I think they're a nice like 15 to 25 type team in college football. But those are the type of teams that aren't national championship contenders, that aren't playoff contenders, and that can lose to anyone on any given night if they just don't show up ready to go. That's who Texas is. It's unfortunate, but that is a reality. You know who is not like that, though? How about those Alabama Crimson Tide? Alabama hosting Texas A&M. Everybody's looking at this game, trying to figure out, okay, how good is Bama? How good is Mac Jones? I'll tell you this. First of all, I never really doubted Mac Jones. If you go back to last year, they put up 50-something points against Auburn, and their defense just couldn't make a stop, and that's why they lost that game. But Mac Jones played well in that game. Mac Jones played well against Michigan in the bowl game. I always thought Mac Jones was good. So first of all, shout out to Bama. They look Bama-esque again. They look again like a team that is good enough to compete for a national championship. Absolutely annihilating Texas A&M. 52-24, they win by four touchdowns. And I'll tell you this, they, they look like the favorite in the SEC right now like they always do. Mac Jones looks awesome. They got the two wide receivers, Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith. Najee Harris maybe the best running back in college football. So they look awesome. But the story, and I say this sometimes, right? You know, we always want to talk about the team that won, the team that's good, the team that had success. But sometimes the story coming out of a game is the team that lost. And in this case, it is certainly the Texas A&M Aggies, okay? And to fully understand why Texas A&M is the story, I do think we kind of have to go into a little bit of context and explain a little bit of backstory of what's going on at Texas A&M. Again, we have a lot of A&M fans who do listen to this show. I do go on radio every week in College Station. And so when we talk about Texas A&M, this is what you have to remember. You have to go back to that magical time of late 2017, which, by the way, was the last time Arkansas won a football game, which we'll get into in a second, an SEC game. 2017, if you remember, that coaching cycle was one of the craziest coaching cycles in the history of college football. Literally almost every big name brand opened up that year. Florida opened up, ended up getting Dan Mullen. Nebraska opened up, ended up getting Scott Frost. Uh, uh, Oregon opened up when Willie Taggart left for Florida State to replace Jimbo Fisher. Florida State opened up. So we had Florida, Florida State, uh, Mississippi State, Nebraska. But the big story in 2017 was Jimbo Fisher. And what I will tell you with Jimbo Fisher is very simply this. When Texas A&M, September, October, when they realized that Kevin Sumlin, their former coach, wasn't going to be there, I know this for a fact. There's a little bit of insider information. The big wigs down in A&M got together, and they said, we are getting a coach with a national championship pedigree. 
We are going to go get someone that can take us to the upper level because we have invested so much money into this program. All we need is the right coach. And in their defense, they really have. For people who do not know, Texas A&M committed about $500 million to stadium upgrades and to facility upgrades the year after Johnny Manziel won the Heisman. And the reason being very simply like, dude, we're in the SEC, we're here, we're Texas's program in the best conference in college football, and we believe we are ready to take that next step. And so when they fired Kevin Sumlin, they said, we are going after a coach that has won a national championship, or at the very least has been in that very short conversation. I know they wanted Dabo Sweeney. Dabo obviously wasn't interested. I know they wanted James Franklin. James Franklin wasn't interested. I believe there was a call to Chris Peterson. The AD at the time at Texas A&M had worked with Chris Peterson at Washington. Chris Peterson has obviously since retired. But that was a job where the the boosters and the donors basically said this. We'll write you whatever check you want if you get us the right guy. And if you remember... Jimbo Fisher was at that time the right guy. Florida State wins the national championship in 2013. They make the, the first college football playoff in 2014. 2015, they play in a big bowl game. And so you get to 2017, and he is one of the best coaches that you can actually convince to leave another school. And Texas A&M gets him. And I'm bringing all this up because you have to remember the context of this conversation. You have to remember the price tag that Texas A&M paid for Jimbo Fisher. And if you don't remember that price tag, here is what it is. $75 million, 10 years, all guaranteed. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that Jimbo Fisher, if he goes 1-9 this year and Texas A&M decides to fire him, they owe him every single dollar from that coaching salary. $75 million guaranteed. I could be wrong, but I believe for a new head coach, it is the most anyone has ever spent. I mean, 10 years at 7.5 per year for 10 years is insane. A five-year contract is good. A six-year contract is really good. A 10-year contract is unheard of. I don't think there's another one in college football like that. Now, you got college basketball where John Calipari has a lifetime contract. By the way, shout out to Steve Alford who has a 10-year contract in Nevada. But when you look at Texas A&M, They pushed all the chips in the middle with Jimbo Fisher. And so why is Texas A&M the topic of today's show and the topic of this conversation, even though Alabama was clearly the better team and won? It's because we're getting a go time with Jimbo Fisher. And it is about time that we start asking some tough questions about Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M and what he's doing in the development of this program. Because when you look at the situation on Saturday, there is no other way to put it other than that it was an unmitigated disaster, okay? So Jimbo Fisher is now in year three at Texas A&M. And I think for the most part, he's done pretty well for himself. Year one, he gets there, takes over a new program. They end up winning nine games. And in the SEC West, in your first year, nine wins is pretty darn impressive. They didn't beat Bama but they also played Clemson in the out-of-conference, and it was a really tough schedule. So they win nine games. Last year, they go 8-5. and five. But in defense of Jimbo, they played maybe the toughest schedule in the history of college football. For people who don't remember, they played Clemson in the out-of-conference. They played Alabama-LSU. Then they had a crossover game with Georgia. So in total, and I don't think this has ever happened before, they played three teams last year that were ranked number one in the country when they played them. They played Clemson when Clemson was ranked number one. 
They played Bama when Bama was ranked number one. They played LSU when LSU was ranked number one. And oh, by the way, they played Georgia when Georgia was ranked number four in the country. Toughest schedule ever. You can forgive them for going eight and five. Here's the issue, though. We are currently in year three. And by year three, if you are a head coach that is being paid $75 million, it is time to start showing that you can compete with the big boys. Year one, it's okay. Year two, we know you're building. But year three is kind of go time, right? I mean, think about it. Nick Saban wins a national championship year three. Urban Meyer has Ohio State competing for national championships in year three. Kirby Smart, whatever you want to say about him, and I've been crazy critical of Kirby Smart, he had Georgia in the college football playoff in year two competing for a national championship. And so I don't think it's unrealistic for A&M fans to have had bigger expectations coming into this year. They returned a lot of guys. Now, I do understand they had some guys opt out, most notably their best wide receiver, Jamon Austin. But it doesn't change the fact that expectations are still ratcheted up. And if you're an A&M fan, you wanted to go into Bama on Saturday and at the very least feel like you could compete with Bama. If you don't beat Bama at Bama, it happens. There's not many teams that do that. Joe Burrow did it last year. Joe Burrow's an outlier. There's not many teams that beat Bama at Bama, okay? And so if you're A&M, what you want from your program is if we can't win, we at least want to compete. We at least want to show that we are improving, that the gap is narrowing between us and the best teams in this, in this conference, which in turn means that the gap is narrowing between us and the best teams in college football. Instead, the exact opposite happened. Texas A&M loses by 28 on the road at Alabama. They give up 52 points, which is essentially the most that they've given up since Jimbo Fisher has gotten to Texas A&M. Now, technically, they gave up 72 in a seven-overtime game against LSU, but taking that game out, most points they've given up, biggest margin of victory in a loss. And it's very clear that the gap is not narrowing between Texas A&M and the elite teams in this conference. And so I do understand the frustration of Texas A&M fans. We're paying a lot of money, and we need to see results. And I think what's especially frustrating is that Jimbo Fisher was known as an offensive guru, an offensive savant when he got to Texas A&M, and this offense kind of looks the same every single year. It was actually pretty good a few years ago when he first got there, but last year it ranked 8th in the SEC out of 14 teams. And this year, it ranks 8th out of 14 teams in the SEC. And you can't even use an excuse of, well, we just played Bama, because you opened week one against Vanderbilt, and you couldn't move the ball against Vandy. You narrowly win, close loss, to close win to the worst team in the SEC at home. You can't use the excuse that it's because we're in the SEC and our schedule's tough. Because Florida's moving the ball. Georgia looked pretty darn good the other night. Bama just put up 52 on your behind. And so I do understand the frustration for A&M fans, right? At some point, we have to narrow the gap, and it's not happening. And not only is it not happening, we're not even taking the steps that we think we should be taking. Our offense looks exactly the same as it did the day you got here. Kellen Mond, our quarterback, who I actually thought, all things considered, didn't play terribly on Saturday, he kind of looks like the same guy he did as a true freshman. Looks like a guy that can complete the short passes, can hand the ball off, running backs run between the tackles, but there's nothing dynamic about it. You think about the dynamic coaches offensively in college football, many of them now reside in the SEC. Lane Kiffin, Mike Leach, Lincoln Riley, who's obviously not in the SEC, Dana Holgerson. 
Heck, if you just think in the SEC, think about all the great play callers that you think of. I just mentioned two of them. Lane Kiffin, Mike Leach, Dan Mullen, uh, Steve Sarkeesian, the Alabama offensive coordinator. Where is Jim? Jim O'Fisher's not even in the conversation. He's supposed to be the offensive guru that you're paying $75 million a year to. And so I do understand the frustration of uh, A&M fans, and I do understand it's year three and it's go time. And you can't even use, well, I just got here as an excuse anymore. I think it's actually very interesting that we're kind of at this brink, this turning point with Jimbo Fisher because he's playing Florida this week. Well, guess what? Dan Mullen's in his third year as head coach at Florida. That team's rolling. Kyle Trask is probably the Heisman favorite right now, and their tight end Kyle Pitts is probably right behind him. How about staying in the SEC, uh, Jeremy Pruitt? I'm not comparing Texas A&M to Tennessee because Tennessee, even though they're on an eight-game win streak, hasn't played anybody. We're going to get to Tennessee in a minute. But at the end of the day, Tennessee has won eight straight. Like, Tennessee is playing great football right now. Jeremy Pruitt's in year three. So what's your excuse, Jimbo Fisher? And so I do think A&M fans have kind of hit that wall of like, dude, we gave you year one. We gave you year two. But it's year three. These are your guys. It's a veteran roster, 16 starters back. We need to start seeing some results. Now, I will say in Jimbo Fisher's defense, he's not on the hot seat. Nobody's about to fire him. Texas A&M would owe him way, way, way too much money to do that. But, man, they're also not paying him to go to Alabama and lose by 28. They're not paying him to not close that gap. And I will just tell you very simply that this is a big weekend for Jimbo Fisher. Texas A&M hosts Florida. And if you are who you claim you are, if you are that coach, that $75 million man that was brought to Texas A&M to win a national championship, it's time to start delivering, man. One team that does look like it's going to compete for a national championship, and by the way, that was a hell of a transition. I'm just transitioning left and right here. It's unbelievable. One team that really does look like it is good enough to win a national championship, how about the Georgia Bulldogs? So Georgia, that was one of my best bets of the weekend. They hosted uh, Auburn. Were, um, what is it? Deep South Oldest Rivalry game that's usually played early November gets moved up this year, and Georgia freaking dominated. Okay, before we get to Georgia, I do quickly want to talk about Auburn because shout out to all the Auburn fans that were all up in my mentions last week, all up on my podcast last week. Torres, you don't know what you're talking about because I refuse to acknowledge that Auburn is the greatest team in the history of football because they beat Kentucky in a game where Kentucky had a touchdown taken off the board and in a game where their final two possessions came down to short yardage, short field situations after Kentucky turnovers, one of which wouldn't have happened if Kentucky's first touchdown had been taken off the board. So shout out to Auburn. I don't think you guys are very good. I think you guys are going to struggle all year. I think you're like a 5-5, five 6-4 and five, six and four type football team. If I was doing SEC power rankings, I would have you no better than 7th or 8th behind Alabama, uh, behind Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, LSU, maybe 6th. 6th is the, easy, the, the, the highest, and I don't even think I'd put them ahead of Mississippi State right now. So anyway, shout out to Auburn. I don't think you're good. But the real story in this game was Georgia because Georgia pretty much since Kirby Smart got to Georgia – has not been able to find a quarterback. And I don't know if they have like the, the, the franchise right now. Like They don't have Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, who of course ironically started his career at, at Georgia. They got a pretty good one in this Stetson Bennett kid though. And for people who didn't see this Georgia game on Saturday, really crazy backstory on their starter. His name is Stetson Bennett IV. 
greatest SEC quarterback name ever, maybe, at least since John Parker Wilson. But Stetson Bennett, kind of a crazy story. He um, came to Georgia as a walk-on. Then he left Georgia, went to junior college, then came back to Georgia as a scholarship player. Never even heard of that, right? But the one thing I will say about him is the dude apparently is a grinder because if you listen to the broadcast uh, about a month ago, he was the fifth string quarterback at Georgia. And the coaches basically told him like, dude, we don't have snaps for you. And not only do we not have snaps for you, we appreciate you wanting to be part of this program, but you will never be our starter here. Like, like literally they talked about it in the broadcast. They're like, you will never be our starter here, which is insane because it's crazy how the world works and we all know what's happened since. Jamie Newman, who was projected to be the starter, transferred from Wake Forest. He opts out of the season. I still believe, I think, I don't think he was as close to winning that job as maybe other people thought. Uh, JT Daniels, the transfer from USC, wasn't cleared early, came back this week. I don't know if they didn't like him or they didn't think he was healthy. Then the other kid, Dewan Mathis, really struggled against Arkansas. And so because of it, this kid Stetson Bennett gets the start, and he was awesome on Saturday, 17 of 28, 248 yards. But I think the story here, again, it's the Texas A&M thing. It's the story behind the story. Georgia's got all the pieces now. The one thing that they don't have is a quarterback. The one thing they didn't have last year with Jake Fromm is consistency at quarterback. I think they got the quarterback this year, guys. And again, I'm not saying he's Justin Fields. I'm not saying he's Trevor Lawrence. I'm not even saying he's Mac Jones. He's not as dynamic as those guys. The one thing he is, though, he's steady, and he's probably a little bit more skilled than a lot of people want to give him credit for. He looked awesome against Auburn. Every time they needed a big throw, he made it on the numbers right to their wide receiver. But I think about when I think about Georgia, what I think about is the fact that all the other pieces are there. And you guys know, right? Like, I've been critical of Georgia through the years. I have been on Kirby Smarts, you know what, ever since the year that they tried to pull the stunt to get into the playoff where they were arguing that because they played Bama close in the SEC championship game that they deserved a shot at the playoff. And I've been on Kirby Smart ever since then. But I will give him credit for this. The man can certainly recruit, and the man knows like fundamental solid football. Like Georgia will never be Mississippi State with Mike Leach or Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley. But they play really good defense, and they run the ball really well, and you saw that Saturday night. They completely stuffed the ball down the throat of Auburn all night long, completely dominating that game. I mean, they just kicked the you-know-what out of them. They finished with uh, over 200 yards rushing, almost five yards per... I mean, they dominated them. They got the O-line. They got the running game. The defense is phenomenal. Auburn didn't score a single touchdown all game long. And when I look at it, I'm sitting here saying, I think Georgia has their quarterback, and I think he could be the missing piece for that team. Not saying he's as talented as some other guys in the country. They don't need that much talent at that position. They just need consistency. They need a guy that's not going to turn the ball over. And they need a guy that can make passes when he's called upon. And I saw that against Auburn. Now, we'll see because they go to Bama in two weeks. And, of course, they have Florida coming up. I think Georgia's pretty good. By the way, they also have Tennessee next week. So going to be fascinating. Uh, but I think they got their quarterback. I think Georgia's probably, if I was power ranking teams right now, I would say behind Clemson and uh, Alabama, I would probably have Georgia at number three. I think they're really good. And I think, I don't know how their playoff picture is going to shape up because they play Bama once in the regular season. They might have to play them twice. Uh, 
But I bring it up just to say that I do think that they are better than people realize, and I give this kid a ton of credit for working. All right, a couple quick topics before we get out of here. Uh, first of all, how about those Arkansas Razorbacks? How about those Arkansas Razorbacks? Shout out to the Razorbacks, who, for the first time since 2017, won an SEC game on Saturday night, okay? 2017, October 2017, it was a long time ago. Brett Bielema was the Arkansas head coach at the time. Here is what, I, first of all, I looked it up. I was like, how long ago exactly was October 2017? Here was what the world was like the last time Arkansas won an SEC football game. The last time Arkansas won an SEC football game, Patrick Mahomes had not made a single start at quarterback in the NFL. Now he's the best quarterback in the league. Tua had not made a single start at Alabama, and he was dominant in college football the last two years. Trevor Lawrence was, of course, still in high school. Joe Burrow was still at Ohio State. Urban Meyer was still the coach at Ohio State. How about this? LeBron was still with the Cavs the last time Arkansas won a SEC football game. Kawhi Leonard was still with the Spurs the last. So it's been a while. It's been a while, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. But I just want to give Arkansas so much credit. I'm so happy for that fan base. We have a ton of Arkansas fans who listen to this show. And I'm happy for you guys. And I'm not only happy, but I'm also happy because in some regards, I got to get something off my chest. And that is that I think I was wrong on Sam Pittman. And so to backtrack, I'll just do it real quick for the people who do not know. Sam Pittman is Arkansas's head coach. Uh, Arkansas, when they fired Chad Morris last year, they, they went through a coaching search. They went through all the big names. For a time, I believe they thought they had Lane Kiffin. He chooses Ole Miss instead. And they end up hiring Sam Pittman, who was Georgia's offensive line coach, had never coached uh, as a head coach at anywhere in college football. And I'll be honest, I, you know, I don't know if I said it on this show, but I was kind of just like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I'd be a little worried if I was an Arkansas fan. But what I give Sam Pittman so much credit for is very simply this. I think he's got a little bit of Coach O in him in this sense. And this I know I've talked about on the show. But he's got a little bit of Coach O in this sense. And I'm not comparing him to Coach O. To be clear, I'm not saying he is Coach O because there's only one Coach O. And I'm not claiming that Sam Pittman is that guy because I'm not saying that he'll win a national championship because he probably won't realistically, right? But what I think Coach O has done well, better than anybody else, is Coach O, through his time as head coach at Ole Miss and at USC, Coach O kind of knows what, he, what, he, what his strengths are, and he also knows what his weaknesses are. I'll tell you this. Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated, he's actually coming on the show later this week. We talk a lot about Coach O. Um, but, you know, one thing about Coach O, he knows what he's good at. He's a great recruiter. He's a great motivator. He gets guys fired up to play. But he's not an X's and O's offensive guru. So he went out and hired Joe Brady last year from the New Orleans Saints, gave him the, you know, the, the opportunity to run the offense, and they win a national championship. The defense, he, went, he goes out and hires Dave, Dave Aranda. They win a national championship. He knows what his strengths are. He knows what his weaknesses are. And he is not afraid to bring smart people around him to help to elevate the program. And it's the exact same thing at Arkansas. Sam Pittman, I will give him credit for this. He knocked his coordinator hires out of the park. And this is one thing I said. You can go find the tweet. Kendall Bryles, the offensive coordinator, he's Art Bryles' son. If you look at him, has had success pretty much everywhere, back to Baylor, Houston, even Florida State last year when Willie Taggart was fired. It wasn't the offense's fault. It was the defense's fault. And the offense has only fallen further off a cliff once Kendall Bryles left. 
And then on defense, they go out and get Barry Odom, the former Missouri head coach. And you look at the performance of those two guys on Saturday, specifically Barry Odom, specifically Barry Odom's defense, those guys are worth their salaries. They're worth every penny that Arkansas has paid them, right? Barry Odom put together an insanely good game plan. And I, you, know, you guys know me. I don't do the X's and O's. I don't claim to be some X's and O's savant. But what they did was incredible. Never forget, Mississippi State two weeks ago, one week ago, against LSU, threw for 600 yards of passing. They had half of that against Arkansas and three turnovers, well, four turnovers, three interceptions. And basically what Barry Odom said was like, dude, we're not letting you beat us deep. You could dink and dunk, you can throw in front of us, we'll tackle. That's exactly what they did. And so when I look at the game plan, again, I don't claim to, oh, I undercover two, uh, no. But what I can tell you is this. First of all, Arkansas is playing so much harder under Sam Pittman. Those guys block, those guys tackle, those guys play to the whistle. Whereas last year, game after game after game, you could see that team quit. Quit quite a bit, as a matter of fact. This year, they're playing harder, and you can just tell they are such better coach team. They, were, they are such a better coach team. So much better than they were. I give them a ton of credit, and I give Sam Pittman a ton of credit. Doesn't have an ego, doesn't care, not about me, just trying to do what's best for the program. He's invested a lot into his assistant coaches, and it showed up on Saturday. Arkansas wins its first game in forever. All right, two quick topics. We'll get out of here. I can't believe how long I'm going today. I want to give a shout-out quickly to the Tennessee Volunteers. And we're just bouncing around team to team. I told you we we're going to do this. But Tennessee, I mean, they laid the smackdown on Missouri on Saturday. And I will say, got to call a spade a spade. Got to take an L sometimes. Tennessee against Missouri. That was one of my best bets. And I did like Missouri. I thought Missouri would keep it close. I thought they would keep it respectable. Instead, the exact opposite happens. Tennessee jumps out to an early lead. They stuff the ball down Missouri's throat, and they win convincingly going away. And as I watched that game, I just couldn't help but think one thing. I am amazed at how far Tennessee has come in such a short time under Jeremy Pruitt. And to backtrack, I'll give you a little history. So, one, I know that I look young and handsome and charming and dashing. Oh, sorry. I went a little, went a little over there. But what I can tell you, I'm not as young as I look. And I've been in some capacity writing about college football for like basically 10 years. Uh, first year, I really did this in any form. And it definitely wasn't a full-time job at the time. Was the year Lane Kiffin was at Tennessee. So that was a long time ago, okay? And I bring it up because while I haven't always been a full-time writer and there's, there's a couple years there where I was working behind the scenes at Fox, I wasn't doing what I do now. I've basically watched every Tennessee game from the Lane Kiffin era to the Derek Dooley era to the Butch Jones era to the current Jeremy Pruitt era. And during that time, I have seen Tennessee lose in some of the most immaculate, spectacular, embarrassing ways that a program can lose. Back in the day, this was years ago, this was during the Derek Dooley era, so we're talking 2013, 2014, whatever. I had a phrase, I had a term. It was a hashtag. Hashtag, you know how hashtags are so cool? And the hashtag was, it's always something with Tennessee. Because if you watch Tennessee football during the Derek Dooley era or even during the Butch Jones era, it's always something with Tennessee. They always found a way to lose the worst way in the most excruciating way possible. It was never just you lose a game. 
it was always you lose a game because you're driving for the winning score and you're in field goal range and then you fumble. Or you're driving, you're going to be in field goal range and you step out of bounds one, one yard short of the, the yard marker. Or there's a pump, a pump block. Or whatever. It was always, there's always something with Tennessee. Always find a way to lose. Never can just like win a game normally. Like get a lead, take a lead, win convincingly. I remember Derek Dooley's last year. I think it was like they got into some crazy shootout and needed like triple overtime to beat Charlotte or something. I can't even remember. It was embarrassing. And I'm not going to lie. Like, like when Jeremy Pruitt was hired, I thought it was a really good hire. But it was kind of the same thing those first couple years. And it was kind of the same thing the start of last year. The Georgia State game, they lose. They get dominated. They lose to BYU at the last second in a the game they could have won. And I kind of thought, like, maybe this, this program is just perpetually cursed from now until the end of time. And instead what happened was something that I think happens a lot in college football and in sports in general. Tennessee had to figure out how to win. You get close, you keep falling, you get back up, you get close, you fall, you lose on the last second, and then they finally broke through last year. I think it really changed. They, they played Georgia out of a bye week, and they looked really good against Georgia. They didn't end up winning the game, but they looked really good. And then, of course, they got on this current win streak that they're currently on. They won six straight to close last year, including the bowl game win over Indiana. And then you fast forward to this year, right? And you're going through and you're like, oh, is Tennessee like too hyped? Are they really this good? And then Saturday happened with Missouri. And it was one of the most surreal things that I've ever seen from this perspective. Tennessee just came out. They have a big, strong offensive line. The kid Cade Mays just got eligible this year, this week. Trey Smith, offensive tackle, really good player. And they just physically kicked the crap out of Missouri. And to watch that game... It was just shocking. It was just shocking because it's been so long. And you have to remember, I grew up late 90s, early 2000s. Tennessee football was a juggernaut, okay? They were like what LSU is right now or what Georgia is right now. Some years they'd be in the national title race, but they'd always be top 10. They're always really good. That was the Tennessee that I grew up on. It has been so long since Tennessee has just gone out taken a lead, and then physically kicked the crap out of another team and broke their will. And that's exactly what happened on Sunday against, or Saturday against Missouri. Get the lead, lean on that big offensive line. Jared Garantano, they don't put too much on his plate, and they just physically kicked the crap out of Missouri. It was just unbelievable to watch. It's a credit to Jeremy Pruitt. I thought he would be good. I didn't think he would turn them around this quickly. Two other things. First off, to the non-Tennessee fans, I know what you're going to say, they haven't beaten anybody. I get it. Beating Missouri twice, beating Vandy, beating South Carolina, like that's not like, you know, we write, you know, we, we're not going to write, get, get Jeremy Pruitt a statue. We're not going to write his autobiography tomorrow. But you got to learn to beat the bad teams first before you move on to the good teams. And that's exactly what Tennessee is doing right now. We'll see how, how far along they are because they play Georgia this weekend. But the other thing is, and I also tweeted this on Saturday, um, shout out to Tennessee fans. Last thought, because when I saw that game, I thought of Greg Schiano. And you all remember how close they were to hiring Greg Schiano, and the fan base just said no. Fan base just said, this is unacceptable. We are not going to let this happen. We are not letting this guy be our head coach. Do better. John Curry got out. Phil Former comes in. He brings in Jeremy Pruitt. And now they've won eight straight. And so credit to the Tennessee fan base for not accepting good enough, 
for not accepting Greg Schiano for getting in Jeremy Pruitt. All right, I've gone on way long. Last little thought. That's the Tennessee Ole, or the uh, Kentucky Ole Miss game. And I know we got a ton of Kentucky fans who listen to this show. And I understand the frustration. It's kind of surreal because if you look at that Kentucky game and really Kentucky this season, the questions were all with the starting quarterback, Terry Wilson, with the offense. And yesterday it was the defense. The defense couldn't get off the field. Defense couldn't stop anybody. Defense couldn't make plays. They end up losing the game. And Kentucky fans are frustrated and they're mad and they're ready to give up on the season. And I'm not going to tell you not to be mad. I'm not going to tell you not to give up on the season. I'm not going to tell you not to be frustrated. Because Ole Miss made the big plays. Ole Miss made the big scores. Matt Coral, I can't believe, I was looking at the box score before I started recording. It felt like every time I turned the game on, he was rushing for a 25-yard gain. He only rushed for 51 yards, but he made the plays when he had to. Of course, you miss an extra point in overtime, you end up losing this game. Kentucky fans are furious, and I understand it. I'm not saying that I don't understand it. I'm just going to try to give a Kentucky fan a little bit of perspective here, okay? 0-2... Full SEC schedule, you still have Florida, Georgia, Alabama on the schedule, Tennessee as well, Mississippi State this weekend. I think a lot of Kentucky fans are saying, the season's over, we're going to go 2-8, and eight. we're awful, fire everybody, right? All I'd say is this, I'll tell you what I told you on the last episode, last Monday. Should have beaten our Auburn. Might disagree, I thought you largely outplayed Auburn. I thought that if that touchdown is called appropriately and properly in the second quarter, you have a lead going into halftime. You don't have to f- try a fake punt late. I don't think that Auburn game was a reflection of Kentucky not being a superior or at the very least an equal to Auburn. Now, maybe maybe superior is a little bit much. Auburn deserved to win that game. I said so after the game. But Kentucky wasn't that far off from pulling off that win if a couple calls go their way. Then Saturday, like, listen, I just don't think they played that well. I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying it's nothing to worry about. But what I am saying is, for all the freaking out, first of all, let's not forget, and this isn't an excuse, this isn't an excuse, but Kentucky was down late and did make plays and was able to get back in the game, and they were an extra point away from going to double overtime. Now, you missed the extra point. I understand the frustration with the fans and with the kicker and all that stuff, but all I'm trying to say is, you're like literally a couple plays from being 2-0 and right now. And I know it's not what you want to hear, and the defense needs to get better, and I think it will. I think it helps that Arkansas maybe laid out the blueprint on how to kind of slow down Mississippi State going into this weekend. Uh, Arkansas plays a lot of zone defense. Kentucky plays a lot of zone defense. I think that will help. I don't think Mississippi State is as good as they looked against LSU. And so because of it, I just think like, like I need to see – I guess what I'm trying to say is this. I need to see one more game of Kentucky before I freak out. I need to see one more game of Kentucky before I say it's over. Because on the one hand, the run game's been really good, and the offense has been a lot better than I thought it was. I mean, they put up over 550 yards of offense on Saturday. Defense has been much worse. But was it one bad game against Ole Miss? Because they weren't bad against Auburn. Auburn just got a couple cheap scores late. Is the defense that bad, or did Ole Miss just have themselves a day? I don't know. We will find out. I want to reserve judgment on Kentucky until they play Mississippi State this weekend. 
All right. <laughs> I have gone on long enough. But that is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Awesome episode. Thank you guys for listening. Really fun whip around of college football on Saturday afternoon. Great day of college football. I hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, if you're not subscribed, by the way, great week coming up. Nick Coffey will join me on Tuesday's episode. We'll talk all sorts of different things. Obviously, I'm going to want to talk to him about the Chris Mack stuff from last week. Uh, I do want to talk to him about college football, maybe even a little bit of the NBA Finals, as it looks as though the, the Lakers will wrap up uh, this series by the end of this week. But uh, Nick Coffey coming up, and then as I mentioned, Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated, the following show on Thursday. But that is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I want to thank you guys for listening. If you're not already subscribed, please make sure to do so iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Uh, Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, uh, what I'm doing well, where you listen, all that stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Uh, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. You can also find me on YouTube. That is all. I've talked myself into exhaustion. <laughs> Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back Tuesday with more of the Aaron Torres podcast. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 